Um, Jeremy is one of this country's leading and finest historians. Um, he read history uh, at Queen's Cambridge. He studied at St. John's in Oxford and in Merton, Oxford, before he, became, uh, well, he did his PhD at Durham and became a lecturer at that university. He became a professor in 1994. Uh, he then took the chair at Exeter University in 1996, uh, where he's been uh, since. The words which most often you ask around about Jeremy that come up are not just the word prolific in terms of writing, uh, but also energy and ideas. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so determined that we would get you here this evening uh, to give this annual lecture, because you really do embody uh, an enthusiasm and energy for this subject, which I think is unsurpassed in the profession. Uh, but also uh, ideas across an astonishing range of subjects. Um, he's published over 100 books, and I think is well en route to surpassing Leopold von Ranke's 180, allegedly. Not only in the field of military history, for which he's well known, of course, but also in geopolitics, in 18th century uh, English and American history, empires, cartography, and even literature and method. Um, and a little-known book you may not know about Jeremy's written The Politics of James Bond. Uh, so um, there's a few things that he's not thought about and converted into really engaging uh, text for us all to enjoy. Of course, his big contributions, I think, to history uh, and indeed to studies and other subjects have been to reject um, the technological determinism, the kit argument about military history, as if somehow military history could be reduced to crossbows, bayonets and buttons and so on. He's rejected all that as a causal mechanism and really embraced the idea of diversity within military studies. It's no good only looking at operational history and tactical history if you want to understand the history of war. He's also famously rejected a purely Western approach to understanding war, uh, and his range uh, is truly global, and the detail of that range is quite astonishing for any single human being to remember the details of Emperor Wu Ti in China, for example, uh, how the Persians fought through different centuries, and then to, be able to place all that on a historical map and be able to explain all the gaps in between is really very, very remarkable indeed. He has a mastery detail then and a great range. Uh, he's the editor of several publication series, even those, uh, and of course, many, many books of his own. He's teeming with original ideas. Um, including the state of the art of our profession, which he may be tempted to say something about, I don't know, um, and indeed not just about the history profession, but about international studies uh, more generally. He's given us um, excellent assessments about the role of the individual, of friction, bellicosity, revolutions in war, uh, and his most recent book is on air power, which you can get in bookshops, I think, imminently, uh, if you haven't yet got the full uh, Jeremy collection. He's also thought very carefully about the future of war and the future of strategy, and it's strategy and war that he will speak on this evening. Professor Jeremy Black, it gives me great pleasure. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, since I'm the show before the reception, I don't want to take up too much time before we have the shabbly champagne, oysters, and reclining upon Nubian slaves, or whatever else you arrange. <laughs> but anyway, um, can I first start by making a brief tribute to somebody who isn't here? Um, I first came to Pembroke as the guest of Piers Mackesy. Piers Mackesy, um, unless you're elderly, you probably won't recall. 
He was the fellow here um, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, the senior history fellow. Um, he's a man who most people treated, I'm afraid, without the um, credit he deserved. He was a scholar of the old school. Uh, he was rather self-effacing. Uh, and the joke about him, it's always interesting if you're a historian to think about the jokes that are told. The joke about him was that he used to ask his students whether they wanted to take a um, special subject, because of course if they didn't want a special subject, they would be gentlemen and didn't really need much teaching, but also the maximum degree they could get was a special. Um, what people tended to underplay is that he was a deadly serious scholar, he wrote a number of very large books at a time when Oxford Dons did not write large books, or didn't write any books in the case of many of the historians. Um, these were ones in which he considered um, strategy and operational history. They were highly technical. They showed a mastery of the um, details of the subject. He never wrote a textbook. He always wrote monographs, and they were truly excellent books. Uh, he was largely ignored in his lifetime. He's dead now, I'm afraid. He was largely ignored in his lifetime, but he was a very distinguished scholar, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, he'd not got the fame of some of the other people who were here, but he, in my view, is the best military historian in this university over the last hundred years. And I would invite you to read his books on the American War of Independence, on Abercrombie, on British strategy in the uh, invasion of Egypt in 1801, on the Mediterranean uh, after <coughs> Trafalgar, and you will see a level of insight that was well ahead of its age. Uh, what he suffered from, I'm afraid, apart from the lack of he wasn't a fashionable figure in his era, but also in particular in the field of military history, he wasn't at all interested in the war and society approach. And he suffered from that, and it's a great pity because the level of scholarship he offered was far greater than that produced by anybody that's ever done work on the war and society bracket. Now, if I might just briefly um, make sort of one or two methodological points. There are all too many lectures of this type in which the speaker comes along and provides you with what he, sometimes she, but generally he, provides as his interpretation which supposedly unlocks the subject, etc., etc., etc. War, of course, is far too complex a subject for that. Indeed, history as a whole is far too complex a subject for that. Any time you ever see a book or a, a lecture described as definitive, you know there's something seriously wrong with the assessor and, indeed, with the hubris of the, uh, of the person giving it. What I want to do is to offer some ideas. I would be delighted to hear, either in person or subsequently in any format people want to offer, uh, criticism of them. I think historians proceed in taking part in the debate with each other, both each other of the past and each other of the present. And what I am offering is a personal view. That is it. It is not intended as definitive, and I am truly troubled by the way in which so many, as it were, alpha males go into military history and offer supposedly definitive accounts which allegedly unlock it. Uh, unlock it all. And the last point, if I might make some comments on our host, he said it's warm here. I have to tell you, arriving at the railway station, I felt to myself arriving in a really, truly cold place, and I thought, why on earth am I not brought a coat? And secondly, the other point, everybody talks about Teutonic efficiency. To the best of my knowledge, the Germans lost both world wars. <laughs> in fact, if you, excuse, if you exclude the butchery of people in southwest. Uh, Africa and in uh, modern Tan Tanzania, they haven't actually won a war since 1871. So I don't think we should be talking about Teutonic efficiency if we're military historians. It's the very opposite. The German track record was singularly bad 
and we've covered that up because people are fascinated by Clausewitz, they're fascinated by Moltke, but on the whole, the Germans actually didn't do terribly well. So, now, the lecture. <laughs> the lecture. <laughs> I was asked to speak about modern warfare and modern strategy, and I was thinking, how do I provide a central image, which to me sums up what has been most important about warfare in the last 30 years and the use of the military. And actually, I would like to start by focusing on just such an image. It's a very famous image, unfortunately made famous. Um, and it is probably the single most effective use of force um, in the last 30 years. Does anybody like to tell me what they think that might be? Question time. As you know, he said I wrote a book on James Bond. If you got it wrong, I will press a little button here, <laughs> and as in the scene in the novel Thunderball, repleted in the film, you will get an electric shock, but because of health and safety, it can only be one that gently warms your behind, rather like a Japanese man. anybody like to tell me what it is? Twin Towers. No. Twin Towers led nowhere. It didn't produce any strategic victory for Al-Qaeda? No, of course. Classic Western obsessionalism. <laughs> <laughs> no, the answer is the suppression... Um, in the Chinese reform movement in 1989. The most famous image, of course, is of the line of tanks in Tiananmen Square. Um, the large-scale use of force there was actually accompanied by what is much less well-reported with a large-scale use of force across China as a whole. And indeed, the government felt able to use that force because it already knew that the PLA, People's Liberation Army, it already knew that the PLA was behind it. So it often... Force is only used when governments know that the military is behind them. So, for example, de Gaulle goes to Germany um, uh, during the 1968 crisis uh, in France, in Paris, because he wants the assurance of the uh, French generals on the, uh, you know, in the occupation army in, in, um, in Germany that they will actually back him if necessary. China in 1989 captures the significance of military history, the use of force, in the modern world, because of course the use of force in China is directed against fellow citizens. We tend to think of force in terms of power projection against other countries. We tend to be most comfortable in those, in those terms. It's ones in which you might say within the Western tradition the military has been habituated to thinking that that's normative. But if we were to reconceptualize the world in terms of the most populous countries, in terms of where most people live, not quite the same thing, or in terms of just a large number of states, you would actually, of course, realize that uh, Western military history is, in some respects, quite tangential. I don't mean it's, un it's without consequence. You know, a global perspective does not mean that you say that Western military history is without consequence, but it doesn't mean you necessarily put it foremost. The world's, uh, the world's four and most populous states, only one of them, the United States, with the third largest population in the world, is a Western state. The other three, China, India, and Indonesia, are not. And if you look at China, India, and Indonesia, you will be aware that although they have used force to a certain extent against neighbours, in practical terms, they have not engaged in large-scale uh, foreign war. The last large-scale foreign war that China engaged in was the Korean War, which is between 1950 and 1953. 
brief some considerable time ago. There was a brief Chinese invasion of India, very, very, very limited warfare. Interestingly enough, one of the best examples of running limited warfare. Uh, there was a brief uh, Chinese attack on Vietnam, not a brilliantly successful one, although it sent a strategic message to the Soviets that the Chinese were willing to act against one of their protégés. And that's it. That's it. That's the world's, in some respects, uh, most populous state. It is a state where the military is very significant um, within the power structure. And it's a state which had, of course, a long history in the 20th century of war. Indeed, since uh, World War II, the largest war in terms of the number of combatants is, of course, the Chinese Civil War of 1946 to 1949. But other than that, China's out of the picture. It is the use of force for internal control that is most important. Well, what about India? India, of course, has fought a number of foreign wars, principally three uh, wars against Pakistan. It's fought the above-mentioned uh, brief war against China. It's intervened in a number of its neighbours, Sri Lanka, for example, and Nepal. But all of these have been at smaller in terms of the scale of troops deployed and in terms of the intensity of operations than the significance of internal affairs. Again, in India, if you were really looking at totemic images of military activity, the totemic image of military activity would be the storming of the Golden Temple, the, you know, in order to deal with a Sikh um, extremist movement. Incidentally, it's a classic example, I always believe in non-PC remarks, it's a classic example of the way in which um, uh, history is constructed that Indians endlessly wax on about General Dyer and Amritsar in 1919. Fewer people were killed in that operation than were actually killed in the storming of the Golden Temple. The one apparently is unacceptable, the other apparently is acceptable. We'll leave that to one side. Indonesia. Indonesia. Well, if you come from East Timor or Australia, you will know that Indonesia has not exactly always been benign in its international politics, and the same thing could be said of the confrontation with Malaysia in 1963-66, or its attempt to overthrow Brunei in, by similar sort of modern, I mean, with these days I think we call them hybrid operations, but a similar sort of thing in 1962. But in practical terms, if you're looking at Indonesian military history, Indonesia is the fourth most populous state in the world, the largest Muslim state, incidentally, by population. If you were looking at Indonesia, you would have, again, a focus on internal affairs. The uh, Indonesian government, uh, having taken part in its struggle against Dutch rule, uh, which has been variously described, uh, in, in, but having taken part in that struggle, in fact, in practical terms, was a jargon movement. They then needed to use force to suppress uh, opposition, uh, a reluctance to be ruled from Java, particularly in Sumatra and Sulawesi, as we used to call it, the Celebes, uh, and also, of course, in um, Western New Guinea. Um, the tradition of the Indonesians kicking around people in Sumatra has continued, of course, with separatism in nature. And the biggest episode in Indonesian military history occurred in 1965 to 1966 when the army overthrew the nationalist government and suppressed the communist movement. That sounds all very anodyne, doesn't it? We used to think about 120,000 people were killed. We now think about 200,000 were killed. That's the largest use of the military by the Indonesians, far more consequential than anything they've ever done to threaten their neighbours. 
So one of the things I'm trying to start off by looking at is the way in which civil warfare is more salient in modern warfare than even if we can put it salient in terms of Western perspectives. And we can take that several stages further. If we were looking, for example, at um, distribution of population around the world, roughly two-thirds of the world's population lives in Southeast, Southeast Asia. Um, all of those are areas which have been predominantly characterised by uh, conflict within states rather than interstate conflict. I'm not saying there's no conflict between states, but if you compare, for example, Burma and Thailand, which, for example, fought major wars against each other in the 18th century, today they have tensions, but they don't fight wars against each other. Uh, they deal with minorities within their own countries, but don't actually fight wars against each other and so on and so forth. Or if you take, on, again, on the global scale, a question, if you exclude Antarctica, which is the continent, the populated continent in the world, which has engaged least in state-to-state -state warfare, either within that continent or outside that continent, since 1940? I'll, don't all shout at once. I'll ask there's six continents to choose from. I'm just going to try to help you, all right? <laughs> so um, if, I, if we put up hands, let's start. Asia, anybody? Australasia? A few for Australasia. That's interesting because the Australasians engaged in World War II. They were engaged in Korea. They were engaged in Vietnam. Uh, North America? <laughs> South America? Africa? Well, the answer is South America. Since the Grand Chaco War between Paraguay and Bolivia between 1932-1935, there's been very little state-to-state uh, -state warfare. There was a little squabble between Brazil and Ecuador in 1940. Brazil sent troops to um, Italy in World War II. No other Latin American, lots of Latin American countries declared war on Germany, including Argentina eventually in 1945. But the only other one that sent any troops was Mexico, which sent some planes. Um, and other than that, uh, not much warfare uh, since World War II. I mean, obviously, there's the war over the Falklands or the Malvinas or whatever you want to call them. But, you know, states like Chile and Argentina, which don't get on with each other, have managed to maintain their differences without fighting. And yet, if you go to Latin America, you will know that in many respects, Latin America is a heavily militarised continent. But the point about the militarisation is not to have high-spec weaponry. It is, in fact, to be able to use force at the behest of the state, and sometimes the state acts at the behest of the military. The two can be coterminous. Often right-wing governments, but sometimes, as, as in modern um, Venezuela or Cuba, left-wing governments. But the whole, the, what is shared is a notion that force it can be legitimately exercised by the state and that the legitimate target are people within the state who can be regarded as in some way not conforming to whatever is the notion of incorporation that is demanded of them, whether it is in terms of, in Latin America it isn't religion, but whether it's in terms of class or region uh, or political agenda. In some countries it's in, it's in terms of uh, religion. Now, I've been asked to make some comments about how I see it, this moving forward. Let me suggest as follows. I don't know, obviously, no more than anybody else knows, but it's 
pertinent and reasonable for us to comment, not least because militaries need to actually, in terms of procurement, doctrine and training, think about the future, whereas civil society uh, needs to consider how best uh, to fund and support military activities and how best to plan for them. So let me make one or two suggestions. First, I think we are on an astonishing experiment, and I don't mean that in a particularly attractive way, and the experiment is that of a major rise, an unprecedented rise, in terms of both numbers and rate of the world population. The, if you're a Malthusian, I'm not particularly a Malthusian, but if you are a Malthusian, you would argue that the self-restraining mecha self mechanisms have all broken down, whether they're social manner, social uh, habits, you know, you don't get married until you have land, or whether they are um, in terms of biosystems, whatever. You, know, you can take it different ways, and they're probably all cumulative. Anyway, population is rising very rapidly. We're at about 7.4 billion at the present moment. It used to be believed, used to be argued, the classic argument is still repeated in liberal circles, that as people became more educated, particularly women became more educated, so family sizes would, um, would uh, fall, and the result would be that the population would top out at about 9.5 billion by the middle of the century. Um, the United Nations has now revived, these are just all projections, so projections are only that, but the United Nations has lost confidence in that and is now anticipating probably 10.5 to 10.75 by the end of the century. In other words, what appears to be happening is that the restraints that used to be believed would allow people to limit family growth are becoming less effective, not least because groups that are more religious, more devout, whatever term you want to use for them, have a higher birth rate, and these do not seem to be being attenuated, their practices don't seem to be being attenuated uh, by social change. Now, whether you think we're going to end up at 9.5 or 10.75 is actually somewhat immaterial. What we are talking about is a very significant rise in the world's population, with the issues that will arise from that. Now again, we don't know what those issues are. You can have populations that increase very rapidly without much of a sense of social disorder. Zambia is a good example of a country whose population has risen very significantly, Senegal is another one, without there being actually significant rates of internal breakdown in social norms or political order. So it is not the case that necessarily population rise causes chaos. On the other hand, there are clearly both resource issues, and those resource issues are sometimes more pressing than others. Water is the most pressing resource issue. There are resource issues, but there are also the question of people's perception, their belief that they would be better if it wasn't for whichever other group is allegedly taking, you know, land or water or food or opportunity or, uh, you know, jobs in the state sector or whatever. And that clearly is an issue of volatility, and I think it's fair to say that the issue, that issue of volatility appears to be growing. We can add then a, a series of other factors to the mix. Number one is the actual sociological shift. If you were to go back to 1850, and in much of the world, in fact, as late as 1950, a lot of the population lived in areas that were under a degree of hierarchical control. 
social patterns were ones in which it was assumed that the young would be deferential towards their older elders. There was an assumption that social norms didn't change, etc., etc. These were primarily the case with agrarian societies. And whereas a society like this one, as early as 1851, the majority of British people lived in what was right, the majority of English and Welsh people lived in what were defined as towns or cities, uh, it's fair to say that in many countries, including, uh, for example, many European countries in Eastern Europe, uh, that change didn't occur to the second half of the uh, 20th century, and in some places, like China at the present moment, uh, the change is occurring at the present moment. Moving to the towns and the cities appears to have been linked to the breakdown of pre-existing patterns of order, deference, and hierarchy. That does not, again, mean that you're inevitably going to have chaos. There is no reason to believe that living in a large city is necessarily going to produce a lawless environment. On the other hand, the stress and strain can be greater, not least because the stress and strain could be later, greater if there are fewer mechanisms to cope, to cope with um, economic disorder. I mean, if you want, for example, where I live in the 1920s and 30s, uh, people who were poor and unemployed would just go out, and, you know, it was a miserable life for them, but they would find patches of land and cultivate them and actually put pigs and chickens on them and grow vegetables. Well, you can't do that if you're living in the centre of a big city. Well, people did have pigs, of course, in, in their backyards in London, but on the whole, you can't do that if you're living in a big city. Now, one of the aspects on the very local level of geopolitically, therefore, is we have these mega-cities, Karachi, Kinshasa, Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, Lagos, etc., etc., which are in many senses under relatively limited control. Karachi, for example, the largest city in Pakistan, not the capital, but the largest city in uh, Pakistan, is fundamentally run by sort of political groups which overlap with organised crime and which are grounded in particular ethnic uh, um, sort of... Um, Sort of move, uh, movements, uh, many of them from particular refugees from particular areas in, in India who left during partition in the 40s. Uh, the extent to which the government actually controls Karachi is very limited. Now, again, you might say, does this matter? Does this not take us back to where we were before? Who cares? And you could actually argue that lawlessness is a matter of perception. I can well recall. Visiting Australia, I'm fortunate to do work in the um, at Canberra in the archives there, and I'm sitting on a Sunday morning reading the Australian, um, and it had a two-page spread on murder capital Australia. A gangster had been murdered in Melbourne in broad daylight in the Marriott, um, and they were telling the shocked readers about you know goings on in Melbourne, including the murder rate over the last five years. At that point, I think I was there in 2004, would anybody like to suggest to me how many people have been murdered in Melbourne in the, in the previous five years? Melbourne is a city of over, well over a million people. Anybody? 18. 18? Anybody else? Five. Five. Well, actually, it was 25, but nevertheless, you know, that's nothing, is it? Let's face it. I mean, that really is absolutely nothing. But nevertheless, it caused alarm and despondency. Um, and as we will know, there is a degree to which assumptions of what a normative behaviour vary greatly. A 
murder rate in Johannesburg or Sao Paulo would create to people who lived in Copenhagen the feeling that life was ending as they knew it and that the four horsemen of the apocalypse had all arrived simultaneously. So there is a big degree of perception. But again, thinking ahead, I think it's unlikely that we are going to find it so easy to manage the population rise of the uh, current and next generation as we were able to manage the population rise during the so-called long boom from 1945 to 1973. And if I might make a point there, uh, one of the factors that I've always thought has been underrated when people have looked at the so-called, whatever you want to call it, wars of national liberation, whatever you want to call them, anti-colonial wars, anti-imperial wars of the late 40s onwards. I've always thought that people have ignored the actual extent to which population growth in places like Algeria massively exacerbated the situation from the point of view of those trying to um, you know, control or suppress, uh, suppress dissent. I think the same um, is, is true, likely it's true at the present and likely to be true in the future. Now, if you look at where population growth is highest, at the present moment, UN figures suggest that population growth is highest in which continent, anybody? Africa. Africa. Africa is projected to grow from 1 to 3 billion. And again, there is much of Africa that is not heavily populated. There is much of Africa which produces agricultural surpluses, and indeed, much of the wealth in some places is, is being generated by producing cash crops, to including beef, to export elsewhere. You know, beef is flown to Saudi Arabia, for example. Um, um, you know, cut flowers and cut vegetables go from Kenya to Waitrose and so on. Um, there is the potential to feed more people there, but nevertheless, to move from one to three billion is quite frankly going to be an enormous source of tension, and not least because of the second issue we need to be thinking about, which is the weakness of modern societies as incorporating mechanisms. Now, I don't want to imply that ages in the past were necessarily more benign, but I would simply point out to you that um, modern societies find it very difficult to actually maintain order... Um, if they are dealing with groups that aren't willing or, or able or feel able to, make, to, as it were, behave in accordance with how the governmental system works. Whether that governmental system is a democracy or an authoritarian uh, state is less consequential from this point of view. They just are not willing to accept it. Because after all, if you think a democracy is a brutal system that is telling you to do what you don't want to do, then you might just as much regard it as an illegitimate system as you might regard an authoritarian society as an illegitimate system. And I think, again, here we have problems. And there are different ways you can look at it. You could say it has always been thus, that this hasn't changed with time, that there is no essential perceptual difference, and it's always been difficult to get people to do what you want, and you've always needed to decide whether you wanted to wave the stick around or have hearts and minds or a combination of the two. Dr Johnson, my favourite political thinker, greatly remarked in the 18th century that men are not hung for stealing horses, they are hung so that horses may not be stolen. And that kind of approach to political control is one that you know, has generally happened across, across history. But there are other ways of looking at this. You could argue that one of the effects of mass literacy has been to encourage people's sense of 
unease about their circumstances. They might have been emboldened. In fact, I know I won't embarrass him by naming him. I know here there is a, a, member, of the, a member of this audience whose hobby, um, and a recent hobby which he only apparently was in the last five years, was able to think it was normal to do because he found other people did this on the web, was to dress up as an owl and hoot at the moon in full moon. Now, you know, you, if you were somebody who, it's not illegal, and they may, I don't, I, I don't think it's harmful, but I don't know, and it's not me that does this. But, I mean, the, that, that if, you, um, if you do something like that, uh, you will know that nobody else does that. But then if on the web you find that you're part of a virtual community of 20 or 25 that does that, then you might well regard it as a normal activity. And this kind of normalisation of what we might regard as rogue activity, whether it's killing people in terrorist atrocities, whether it's taking part in uh, violent assault on the nature of the governmental system because it doesn't do what you want to do, etc., uh, etc. Et I, mean, I was recently slightly badly behaved at a dinner party. My host and hostess were telling me how marvellous the junior hospital doctors were because they believed in their cause. And I said, well, you know, let's go out, bomb an abortion clinic, shoot a few badgers, and then see whether we can beat up some people at night. I said, you know, I, I, those are not, not activities I wish to do. But the point, I was trying, the point I was trying to bring out is that all sorts of people might believe in their cause. But the idea that your belief or your emotion legitimates your behaviour is one that is truly troubling and truly dangerous in a political community. And I actually think it's getting more common because of sociological practices in the modern age. Now, where does that put the military? Where does it put strategy? Well, there's several things to say. First of all, in most states of the world, and remember, we should be looking, if we are, want to understand military activity, we have to look at most states in the world, not atypical states. In most states of the world, what it means is that the prime task of the military is maintaining order. If you want to think of a typical military state of the last 50 years, think of Madagascar, or the Malagasy Republic, if you like, or think of Paraguay. These are states in which the military play a role, quite a significant role, more significant role than they play in this country. They are not states which engage in state-to-state -state warfare, and they tend, therefore, to be ignored. Uh, one of the problems, in my view, about the difficulties that has faced Western militaries operating in other parts of the world is because they don't understand that the nature of the military in these states is a question of actually maintaining order they don't realise that occupying these states is as nothing. The question is well, how you then control them. That is what's going to impress the locals. And if you can't control them, you're not regarded as terribly impressive. Um, I would put it to you that the Madagascar army might have done a better job and the Paraguay army might have given a, done a better job unit for unit, through brutality, through other means, uh, than some of our Western forces in some parts of the world. So that's one aspect one needs to think about. Second aspect, you shouldn't necessarily assume from the point of view of civil control that the professionalised military, whatever you call the army or the armed forces, is necessarily more significant than paramilitary forces. If you look at India, the paramilitary frontier force, for example, is more important in some respects in controlling dissent, 
in areas like Assam or facing the big Naxalite rising, which is going on, has been going on for a long time in Orissa, East Central India. Probably the biggest insurrection in terms of scale, numbers involved in the sense of civilians affected, uh, and duration, again, one that just people just ignore uh, because it's within a state and it doesn't involve foreign troops. Um, uh, rather than actually regular units. And of course this is true of other countries as well. Uh, as you will know, uh, the idea that you would have one single military force, the kind of efficiency we would see, rather than a multiplicity of armed forces, reflects our idea of functional functionality. But not the idea of functionality you might have if you're an authoritarian regime, where you might deliberately establish an army as opposed to a revolutionary guard, an army as opposed to a national guard, or several different uh, army forces vying against each other, because what that does is give more authority to the person or group at the centre. The Royal House of Saud in uh, Saudi Arabia, or the late Saddam Hussein in Iraq, are classic examples. And of course, their militaries are pretty effective in suppressing internal disorder, uh, the Shia in Iraq in 1991, they're not fit for purpose if you're dealing with foreign threats. And uh, Hussein was an idiot to go to war with uh, Iran because his army, which was perfectly fine for its purpose of internal control, and indeed you want to therefore promote people within that system for their political loyalty, because they're a member of your clan, because they've taken part with you in acts of butchery and therefore you feel you can trust them. Well, you're not really concerned about whether they understand what logistics means or something like that. So, what one's got to think about is the idea that the, in my view, that the prime purpose of the military will be control internally. In the case of the European powers, I think that actually um, the likelihood is that that is going to be seen on a European scale in the sense that you know the British army or the French army is going to find itself having to deal with sort of fireman duty in the Balkans, which would be nasty and unpleasant and in fact will be probably presented as internal control within Europe. I noticed Mr. Juncker uh, this morning uh, is saying that you know, the European Union will not allow itself to be derailed by the equivalent of what nearly happened in Austria. Well, that may well involve the equivalent of what happened in the United States in the mid-50s when Eisenhower sent in the, uh, the 101st Airborne into um, Arkansas uh, in order to displace the National Guard and to enforce civil rights. Uh, luckily, from his point of view, uh, the, you know, there wasn't any fighting. Uh, if, it had, if there had been fighting, it would have been different. And that specific point about America is worth bearing in mind. One of the reasons the Americans downplay the significance of civil control is that since 1865, there has been very little use of federal troops um, as opposed to National Guard units, which are obviously <laughs> under the state, individual states, of federal troops for civil control within the United States. There have been some, as I've said, the airborne was sent into Arkansas, but there was no fighting. George H.W. Bush actually sent troops into Los Angeles during the 1992 riots. He never used them. Um, I think if he had used them, uh, he might have acquired a different reputation, which might have helped him, might have hindered him, you don't know, but might have helped him in the 92 election. 
Um, but the practicality is that in the United States, where there have been riots, as in Newark or Detroit in the 1960s or Kent State, it was National Guard units that went in, National Guard units that shot fellow citizens. Because the Federal Army hasn't done it, the Americans tend to downplay the significance of that as a potential task. And because often it's the case in a military system, when we're thinking about war, that we tend to think about the paradigm power, the most significant power in the system, therefore we tend to assume that that sets the norms. Well, it doesn't. It may well set the norms for the United States, it, um, you know, rather for the United States. It's um, you know, a continent pretending to be a country. It has no regional separatist movement. Um, it has you know, Democratic and uh, Republicans all over the place, um, even areas which are seen as Democratic or Republican. The other side usually gets 40% of the vote in presidential uh, cases. The largest area with the separatist movement, which is in fact only a tiny one, is Puerto Rico. So, you know, America is very successful from that point of view. But that does not describe most countries. Most countries don't have that. And many countries have the problems of the use, needing to use force, or thinking they need to use force, in order to control regional separatism, which helps them to make force normative within that political structure. So in the case of India, the world's largest democracy, one can see that in Punjab, in Assam, in Kashmir, um, in the case of even Britain, of course, one saw that in Northern Ireland, and so on and so forth. In some countries, you use paramilitaries. Um, France, for example, has used paramilitaries in Corsica and in the French Basque country rather than the regular army. Although if you go to France at the moment, you will notice, I mean, I was seeing this when several times last year, there are quite a lot of French troops on deployment in the French cities in places like Paris and Lyon. And the same thing is not just true in France or in Belgium. Um, I noticed in Naples uh, the year before last that Berlusconi had sent the... Um, the army onto the streets in order to reassure citizens that law and order uh, was being maintained, which in effect was also an attempt politically to make waves for himself, but also to control law and order and take it out of the hands of local government in that particular area. So what one has got, in my view, is a question about the sustainability of current methods of civil control in the face of large-scale population increase, large-scale immigration, migration linked to that, and also uh, associated resource pressures. Now, Rob's also asked me, though, to bring into that question <laughs> geopolitics in terms of tensions between states. I think geopolitics is rather interesting. It's like strategy in some respect. First of all, it is a discourse as much as a, an analytical description. In other words, you can use them as analytical descriptions, but they tend to also be discourses, languages which involve contention, um, and in particular questions of what are and are not reasonable strategies, reasonable assessments of the geopolitical situation. Now, to me, the most important geopolitical change of the last 15 years is the breakdown of the Nixon achievement. The Nixon achievement uh, was obviously the way in which the Cold War changed direction in the 70s. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I mean, basically, if you look at the Cold War in 1960, it looked really, really serious from the point of view of Western policymakers. And that was an age when policymakers could write things down because they didn't think they were going to be revealed by Mr. Snowden or some Senate committee or whatever. The assumption, well, if you look at the, you can see this incident.
don't know if you're interested, even though I'm thinking of all power of Britain, in its, the early fire plans for British nuclear submarines. In other words, nuclear submarines, British nuclear submarines didn't come through until the late 60s, but the fire plans were already in place before that. And the British assumption was that there might well be a Chinese attack on India, a large-scale one, not the little one of 1962, and the British fire planned that they were going to be firing their intercontinental ballistic missiles at the passes through the Himalayas uh, in all, against uh, advancing Chinese forces. Classic kind of what Patrick Porter would call classic fear of hordes, of Asian hordes. Anyway, the perception at that point was of real seriousness that... Um, Communists had done extremely well, not just in Europe, but also in Asia. They had taken over China, they had taken over North Vietnam, they had taken over North Korea, and they were going to spread. Indonesia was moving in the wrong direction, India was weak. This was extraordinarily dangerous. Well, by 1980, it's all fine. Absolutely fine. I mean, it doesn't, you know, if you're a strategist, being a strategist is brutal, right? Really brutal if you want to do the job professionally. Most people can't do it professionally to save their lives. Uh, once you toppled the Suharto Skara regime, it did not matter what happened in Vietnam. The Americans have got strategic debt. Um, they, you know, Indonesia uh, gives you a large area which is pro you, it gives you the oil resources. It, Vietnam's got, South Vietnam's got very little to offer a quick equivalent uh, um, to that. Once you've got China, uh, with Mr. Nixon going off to China, once you've got China on your side, and half the Soviet intercontinentals are pointed against China, and the Chinese are willing to try and kick the whatever out of the Vietnamese in, in 1979, it doesn't really matter that you messed up the Vietnam War. I mean, the problem we've got at the moment in, Af in Iraq and Afghanistan is not that we've done badly. People often do badly. Is we haven't got a, a strategic end game that's going to work for us. Uh, the, the difference in uh, Vietnam is that the Americans had a strategic end game. They couldn't really discuss that in public, but they did have a strategic end game that was going to work. Now, what has gone wrong in the last 15 years is, of course, that there has been a China-Russia reconciliation, which means that if the Chinese choose to be difficult in the South or East China Sea, there is no suggestion that they are going to have to divert military resources, diplomatic strength, in order to keep the Russians on the side. If the Russians wish to be difficult around the Black Sea or in the Baltic, exactly the same. That is why we're in a mess. I mean, on top of that, of course, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't help that there is an enormous uh, difficulty in funding uh, the Western state, Western social welfare, uh, so that we are all dependent on uh, regular foreign inflows of money. And of course, that's why, yet again, what, count, what, what counts in Asia is significant. If you're looking at creditor nations with American assets, obviously China has a lot, but so also does Taiwan. If the Chinese were to lean on Taiwan or take over Taiwan, that is really significant in terms of holding, holding of American assets. Compared to that, you know, who cares what happens in Afghanistan? I remember when I was a student, I, um, we had a talk by Hinsley, and um, Hinsley would have been in British spy foreign policy, policy making, and then became an IR expert and ended his career as a distinguished old man of Cambridge politics and head of uh, St. John's College. And anyway, he was talking about the Cold War, 
And I said to him, you know, doesn't, doesn't it matter? He said Africa doesn't matter. And I said, aren't you bothered about Angola? And he said, no, Angola doesn't count. I said, what about the oil? He said, you can always buy the oil from somebody else. Um, and, you know, what, that kind of approach, it just Kissinger, of course, had the same approach towards South America, you know, famously remarked that it was just pointing towards Antarctica. We don't necessarily need to go that far. We don't need to go that far. But to point out that there are some areas that are more significant than others, and that geopolitics in part is about that. It's in part about the prioritisation between differing commitments and the difficulty is that you cannot now engage in that prioritization in public. Now, I, I, there's a number of Americans here. You will know, if you're an American uh, senior policymaker, you will know that there are all sorts of, very crudely, very crudely, for years the Navy has been saying, waste of time focusing on Iraq and Afghanistan. The key strategic challenge is China. And that's what we ought to focus on. And obviously, that interpretation has you know, had a lot of pushback, I think it's fair to say, from the other services. Now, whether you agree with one or the other, that is a private, to a certain extent, there is a public manifestation of it, but it's largely a private debate. Because if you are in public going to say, well, you know, some of these things really don't count. Okay, we've lost troops, but it really doesn't count. That's not the way to make yourself popular. And one of the difficulties I see it um, is that policy making at the present moment, educating people in strategic debate, is getting harder, not easier, because people essentially emote around their, around their strategic choices at the present moment. They say X is really significant. We can't let this go down. I went to a talk given by the government's chief medical officer uh, recently. I mean, it was a close session talk, and she was saying the chief threat to Britain was, and she's been very influential with the chancellor and the government, was antibiotics. Antibiotics coming, you know, breeding resistance. And she went on like this, and I said to her, well, you know, what kind of figures are you talking about? And she told me the figures she was talking about, and I said to her, you know, it might seem a lot to you. She was very worried about 20,000 people dying potentially in Sierra Leone. I said, it might seem a lot to you, and I don't want to sound harsh, but in comparison to the numbers out there, this is as nothing. This is really as nothing. Um, and, you know, you can't say that sort of thing in public. If you say that sort of thing in public, people think you're an ogre. They think you're an awful person. And I do feel that at the moment we're in a very difficult situation. We're expecting as a state, as a society, we expect, for example, the military and the police to maintain civil order in our societies, but we don't actually give them the kind of um, legal, cultural, and intellectual and ideological framework within which they can make the often difficult decisions involved. And those of you who are British will notice that the police in Britain are finding very many police officers reluctant to take part in firearms training because they fear that if they shoot somebody, uh, they will then be hung up to dry, which I think is probably true. So there's that element of it. And there's the element, of course, if you look abroad, that the way in which sentiment plays a key role. I think sentiment, for example, played a key role in our response to the Libya crisis in 2011. Now, I fear I'm used up my hour... But what I want to close on are one or two general <coughs> reflections on the subject, which uh, 
uh, Rob asked me if I would like to, uh, to make. Well, these are general reflections, and as I said, if you go out thinking he's wrong for the following three reasons, that's great, because the purpose of education is not that you go out thinking, oh gosh, isn't Jeremy right? The purpose is thinking he's wrong, but knowing why you think he's wrong. So let me, let me just make one or two reflections. First, yes, it is important to look at the global dimension, but one needs to do that carefully. It doesn't mean that all parts of the world are necessarily of equal significance, nor can one do all of it, nor does it mean that one has to primitivise some areas by taking a cultural interpretation, what Patrick Porter has made fun of in uh, his account. Um, one has to be very, very careful how one does it, but at the present moment it is necessary. Uh, there is too often a, a failure to understand other parts of the world, and that matters if we're going to project our force there. It doesn't matter if you know nothing about Madagascar's military affairs, because we're not going to be sending our troops there. Okay? We're just not going to do it. We sent troops there in 1942 because we were worried that the Japanese might have a base at Diego Suarez. Since then, we're not going to send them, the French aren't going to send them, the Americans aren't going to send them, so you don't have to worry about it. But there are parts of the world where you do have to worry, and you need to think about it. Next, in terms of one of my interests, which is strategy, too much of the work on strategy is work about the strategic thought of strategic thinkers. This is hopeless. What we have to concentrate on is strategic actors. It is their thoughts. And often those are not expressed in terms of formal <laughs> bodies of literature. Um, the type of Clausewitz or Jomini or Mahan or Corbett or whatever. We need to think much more about the often tangential and episodic way in which we can recover their strategic thought, often involves looking at military planning, and I think that's important. Linked to that, linked to my first point, of course, almost all the discussion of strategic uh, thinking has been either of strategic thinkers in the West or very crude accounts of strategic thinkers in the non-West, generally male, if you're looking at the last uh, 100 years. And, you know, there have been a number of books that have come out on strategy recently. They're interesting books, but I think they're deeply flawed because of that point. Uh, deeply flawed for those of you who are students is code names and what I really think about them. And the last point, the last point that I would like to make, I think that there is, and this in a sense loops back to Mackesy, I think that there is an obligation to try and understand the subject. Magassi himself, as you may know, there's only reason you may know or not know about it, Magassi himself was in a way obsessed about the fate of his father. His father had been a general in the Norway campaign in 1940. He took uh, part of the blame for the failure of the campaign and was disgraced by Churchill. And uh, Mackesy wrote a book about his father, a book about that campaign, he was interested in combined operations, partly because of that, and in a way he possibly put it too, took it too far, but nevertheless he captured this sense of the trust between the generations. In my view, one of the reasons why military history is important is not just because war is, and the potential of war and force as a whole, are absolutely crucial to human society and to the human society we are making, but also it is a trust we owe people to in the past who have given their lives or risked their lives to think about 
and to make, to make the world we live in. It's a trust that we have on us to think about that and to try and understand what they did. I actually fear very much that the modern academic world, with its obsession with Spanish history, which you can see both in this university, and in, I'm afraid to say in my university, I have no responsibility for this one, but I'm afraid to say it's also true of my one, I think that has been singularly dangerous from that point of view. And I also think more generally in terms of civic society. I think the way in which in civic society war and force are simply not understood by the vast bulk of people is a deeply troubling nature of our society. And one, I fear, is going to cause us great problems, not just in the future, but in the present as well. Thank you very much.